We are the music makers, but are you the dreamer or merely part of someone else's dream? I'm the Well-Read Mage, and this is MageCast. Let us wake the windfish together as we assemble the instruments back on Koholint Island, reciting the plaintive, nostalgic song that takes us back to the green and black screen of the Game Boy. This is my personal favorite and one of the most unique Zeldas out there, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. On this episode, I'm joined by fellow non-onirologist and comic book fan, Chris Osborne, the host of Play Comics Podcast. Together, we cover topics as light as seashells and as heavy as censorship, perhaps evocative of the delicate balance of surreal whimsy with haunting sadness in this Zelda game, one that leaves Link as lonesome as he began. Magecast is the podcast for the lonely, for those who miss the simple pleasure of a shared dialogue. MageCast is the podcast for conversationalists in a world where we've already stopped listening to each other. As ever, you can help support MageCast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the pixels, where episodes are offered in early access before going live for the public. You can also learn more at thepixels.com, that's the-pixels.com, or find me on Twitter and Twitch at the Well-Read Mage. Now, let's start the show. Aloha, kakiaka. And mahalo. Thank you for flying Koholint Airlines. My name is Moses, aka the Well-Read Mage, here to talk to you about the islands in a game that's very near and dear to my heart, actually. But before we get to that, let's introduce our guest today. I'm sitting with Chris Osborne of Play Comics Podcast. How are you, Chris? I'm really good, and I'm really excited to talk about what I'm going to hot take say is the very oh. best Zelda game ever made. Ho dang. <laughs> well, okay. So that is, that is quite a hot take to drop right here at the start of the show. Um, I have feelings on that cause this is my favorite Zelda. Um, but I think we'll have some, some, uh, some push and pull on that, on that take, uh, before we get to this Zelda, uh, let's, let's hear a bit more about yourself, a bit more about your content your concept play comics uh your last name is osborne i saw so you kind of had to do a comic book podcast it seems like yeah it was either that or british metal i basically had no choice (laughs) so how did this start how did you how did you get into doing a comic book podcast one day my wife and i were sitting around playing marvel versus capcom 2 and she like she knew who some of the people were because she watches stuff with me and everything But I started talking about, you know, this character can beat that other character and they teamed up in this one thing and other people never teamed up. So I don't know why it it just looks weird that they're teaming up here while we're playing and very lovingly. But the words out of her mouth were maybe you should make a podcast and talk to other people who care about this. I mean, definitely in the not in the I don't want to hear about it kind of way. It was definitely the other people probably want to hear about it too kind of way. <laughs> a tone, very important, I'm sure, for that statement. Yeah, so I sat around on the idea and figured it out and finally figured that I was going to make play comics looking at games based on any kind of kind of comic property, be that newspaper strips, more traditional comics, manga, like anything where the comic came first. And just look at how well those video games represent that comic source material. Which is interesting, I got to say, because 
typically you think about video game adaptations, uh, movie licenses, right? Uh, a ton of games get uh, get to be adaptations of film and uh, can be very hit or miss or miss. Uh, then there's video games based on straight up literature, but you've got kind of a combination of the visual and the literary here with comic books. And I'm going to say a hot take right here that typically comic book games tend to be better than film adaptation games, uh, but I haven't done the math on that. I will really back that up, though, because from what I've seen, <laughs> like the games that are based on a movie from what I've looked at so far anyway, have tended to be worse than games that are just based on the comic. Like you have your ones that sneak in. Everybody forgets that the Batman game for NES that we all love is technically based on that first Tim Burton Batman movie. Mm -hmm. And then there's the amazing Spider-Man games, which are just great. But you know, there's just something special about taking the comic and being able to go and play as your favorite characters. Do you think that beyond, you know, just kind of seeing those characters brought to life, like what do you, what would you say is the core difference then between the film adaptation and the comic book adaptation? Is there some key concept, some, some bit of magic there going on in the comic book game that may typically lend more toward quality than a, a film adaptation? I think the film adaptations have to worry more about if they're sticking strictly to the story of the film or how they're going to tie it in and you don't get any kind of real wiggle room there, especially if you're trying to say, hi, you're going to play the movie. But in the comic adaptations that are just a strict, here's an adaptation of the comic, you can follow the story or not. You can just make up your own story that makes sense for what the characters would be doing. And the characters and the stories there are not something that anybody is really going into those games fully expecting to see an exact replica of the story. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, uh, you know, that there, there may be very rare examples of that. Like I just played through Maximum Carnage recently. And very much, you know, uh, following in the footsteps of the maximum, the maximum carnage crossover event. Uh, but that seems to very much be the exception to the comic book rule, which is that you kind of just take these characters and very loosely adapt them into a video game. Whereas, like you're saying, with a film, there's perhaps more pressure uh, to adapt it more accurately and follow that story more accurately. Uh, also, I imagine too, with a film, they're probably, they're probably wanting to release the video game around the time the film comes out as sort of cross promotion. And I mean, we all know what happens, what can happen when a game is rushed. Oh, definitely. I mean, everybody knows the story of ET trying to get that game rushed out. <laughs> and before you could at least say, all right, if the boot if the game is really, really not ready, we can time it with home video release. But now with that, not even really being a thing anymore, they really try to rush getting them out when the movie is released. And I'm glad that all of the movie licenses have kind of slowed down recently. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, one of the things 
that uh, that we were discussing in private previously was uh, speaking of cr- cross promotion and adaptations. Uh, I invited you onto my show and you invited me onto yours. I'm going to ble- be on Play Comics, folks, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks here. Uh, I'm not going to reveal what we're going to talk about yet, but uh, you'll see that when you see it. Keep an eye out for it. For today, though, we are talking about The Legend of Zelda. So taking Chris away from the comic book scene, although there are Zelda comic books, but it's not based on a comic. Uh, This is Magecast episode 78, entitled Super Mario's Second Family. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening is our game today, and it was developed and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy in 1993. There's an introductory question here from Info Sprinkles who asked anyone else draw out their little island map grids after playing it as a kid? Is that something that you ever did as a child, drawing out maps? I didn't for this one, but mm-hmm. mostly that was because you had the map in the game, and I borrowed one of the strategy guides from one of my friends, so I had the full map there too. Oh, so you were you were gold. I, I also didn't do it for this game. Uh, I definitely did it for the first Legend of Zelda. Um, and a couple of other old school games, but this one, because I was always on the go as well, it being on the Game Boy, um, I didn't, I didn't draw out a map for it, but I do remember not really trying to draw out like a gridded map, but I do remember trying to draw Koholan Island as far as like all the different areas and how they connected, but doing it in an artistic way when I'm like seven or eight years old. So I'm sure it didn't turn out amazing. But as we talk about Link's Awakening, folks, let me remind you that every episode of MageCast is a spoilers cast. So we are going to talk about spoilers here, which is what in particular made me lean a bit away from certain titles for this game that indicate what's going on in this game. I get the game was released in 1993. Uh... But you'll be surprised, maybe, Chris, that there are some people who really care about spoilers. Have you ever run into folk like that? Uh, maybe in the comic book scene? Oh, it's ridiculous. Every Wednesday, <laughs> it seems there is a just giant stream of requests of people of, hi, I know you saw your comics when they came out digitally at midnight. Now, how about you at least wait until after shops are open before you start spoiling things? <laughs> that is... Uh, yeah, that's a couple hours difference. Wow. Uh, definitely not the same thing as spoiling a game from 1993. That's for sure. Uh, but yeah, all that said, folks, if you do care and you haven't played Link's Awakening yet, maybe go check out another episode. Go check out Play Comics. Go play Link's Awakening and then come back. Let's open with a couple mage facts here. Uh, Link's Awakening was originally meant to be a port of A Link to the Past for the Game Boy but it eventually became an original fourth entry in the series. Now, I think that this is probably the best spot to uh, readdress your hot take there at the beginning, Chris. Uh, This was originally supposed to be linked to the past. Uh, I had mentioned Link's Awakening is my personal favorite Zelda, but I actually do think that a link to the past is the best Zelda. I'm sure you've heard that before as well. Typically, Ocarina fans and A Link to the Past fans are very vocal about that. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? Link's Awakening versus A Link to the Past. 
I can understand why people would think Link to the Past is better. Honestly, with this one, I just think it's because of the compactness of it and how everything mm-hmm. is so accessible. You can have longtime fans go play this one and it's a fun little side adventure for them. You can have new people to Zelda play this one and it's not so overwhelming with what's going on. And I think the two buttons that you have to play with really enhances the strategy and how you can go attack things in the game rather than having everything available across six, eight buttons to mess with. Yeah, I could definitely see that, uh, that argument for the accessibility of Link's Awakening. It seems like the hardware limitations, one of the things that's fascinating to me about retro games is how they used hardware limitations really to create a better experience in some ways. Uh, and having a Zelda game, you know, what would normally be a fairly complica- complicated game with a lot of item acquisition, a lot of navigation, a lot of dungeons and enemies and, and puzzles, uh, having all of that fit on the Game Boy is, I think, really impressive. Yeah, and this was my introduction to Zelda as a whole. In all reality, I had probably touched the first two Zelda games before this. I can't remember how that lines up with going and playing with friends, but that was always like, hey, let's play this, and then 10 minutes later of, okay, I'm not going to be able to take this with me, so let's play something else. But when I got Link's Awakening... It was a Christmas present with the big gray brick, and I ran the batteries out on that thing so many times just in the first couple of days playing this game. I I know for a fact I started with Zelda 1, and I really got hooked on Zelda 1, like really got hooked. I I mentioned this story on a previous episode. I put bubble gum in my hair, so I (laughs) didn't have to leave the house. It was either school or church. Stay home play more legend of zelda uh but link's awakening then let you take that away from the tv let you take it to school or to an outing to a park to a road trip whatever um wearing the batteries out on it was absolutely a rite of passage i think and especially with a game like this that just sucks because you don't want to go back and have to redo everything it saving is relatively easy but you have to actually think about doing it. So it was real easy for me to get a few hours of playing in and just forget to save and have to go back and do things again. Yeah. And again, that speaks to probably the, the, the limitations of the, the platform that it's on. Um, I think that in many ways that limitation shapes what, what Link's Awakening is, a, a kind of very like impermanent, wistful, thoughtful, concise zelda as opposed to the more broad epic of a link to the past i feel like once you start comparing two really good zeldas especially in the same format format and formula as a link to the past and link's awakening it gets really hard to compare um but i feel like the hardware limitations absolutely a part of that discussion next fact here there was a re-release of the game known as link's awakening dx which launched for Game Boy Color with colorized graphics and new content. Says there's a new dungeon, new enemies, new puzzles. Uh, Have you played Link's Awakening DX? I have not played DX. 
I had the okay. original one and that's what I stuck with the entire time. I got you. Uh, same actually. I mean, I've dabbled like, you know, on emulators played around with it, but I don't know. Maybe this is true for you. Like I remember Koholint in green and black. Like to me, that's how I remember this memory is that kind of monochrome experience. I don't remember it in color. So I don't know. People were like, Hey, you should really check out DX. I'm like, do I need to, <laughs> how do you like, is that, do you have similar thoughts? I mean, I'm not going to give anybody crap for playing DX. It's essentially, sure. it's the same game. That's the thing. It's just that mm -hmm. extra dungeon. I don't want to go get the thing from the extra dungeon because I want to play it the way that I remember it, which is without that extra color dungeon. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like we, we definitely feel the same way about that. Uh, I think like looking at images of the colorized version, I think it looks great. It looks really good. Um, but yeah, it's just not how I remember it. So I really haven't gone out of my way to play the DX version. Beyond the DX version, there's a complete remake of Link's Awakening, which was released for Nintendo Switch, featuring plastic toy-like designs in a diorama-styled world, custom dungeons, and an entirely revamped soundtrack. Uh, have you played the full remake of Link's Awakening? I have played that one. My wife had never played Link's Awakening. She only had the regular console Zelda games growing up. And I had grabbed at least two copies from the flea market of the original, and something was messed up with both of them. Oh. So I need to get those looked at and figure. It's probably just needs to be cleaned more than I cleaned it. But I figured this Switch remake would be the best way to get her to be able to play Link's Awakening. Nice. I mean, we had a similar experience. My wife did have a Game Boy, did have an NES. Uh, more gravitated to Kirby, but didn't play any Zelda games. But we were able to play through the, the Switch remake uh, together. I really loved it. Uh, what did you think about the remake? It's hit or miss on the graphics for me. Sometimes I wish that they looked more like the original. Sometimes I'm glad that they updated them. That part really doesn't bother me. Um, the, mm. the thing that really bothers me the most with it is I just really liked the complete grid way that you would move around. And so the smoothly moving from one space to another, like it's not going to make me not buy the game and it's definitely not going to make me not recommend it to somebody. But I sit there and it's like, oh, this is not the game I remember. <laughs> yeah. No. So I forgot about that. You're talking about when you transfer transition from one screen to another. Exactly. It's it's a continuous scroll and it's not just moving from one screen to another. And I realize that's something silly and I shouldn't get hung up on that, but getting hung up on weird things like that is kind of what retro gamers do. I, that's true. I mean, you know, not to, not to downplay being hung up on things, but it's a remake of a game that obviously impacted people in their childhood tremendously. And you think about like, what are the reasons why? And that's going to be different for everybody for sure. But it's a broader topic, I think, in discussing what should remakes do and definitely ev evoking uh, that sense of memory that everybody has uh, as much as you can. I didn't remember the, the side-scrolling thing. Uh, the biggest beef that I had with the remake is the unfortunate tech issues. Um, 
every once in a while things would really stutter and slow down and even the music would kind of skip. And it, that to me just really didn't speak to the polish that I might've come to expect from something like this. Um, I personally thought that, like the the diorama look was really cool in that it was unique and inventive. It wasn't just, oh, you know, this is going to be more realistic or this is going to be, you know, um, in HD now. It's going to be crisper pixels or anything like that. But it was like, we're going to choose a specific style, a specific aesthetic and rethink this entire game world in that. And I thought I thought that was at least creative. Yeah, I appreciate that they went and tried to do something new with it. And we didn't really notice any of the slowdown issues you speak of there. Part of that might have been because I was paying attention to my wife and her reactions to things. Part of that mm. might have just been the nostalgia glasses making me miss stuff. It could have just been, I've, I mean, I don't know. I haven't tested it on multiple Switch systems. But every once in a while you bring up tech issues and some folks are like, I didn't experience that. So I don't know. Could have been on a per console basis. Um, but a question for you from Matter of Michael on Twitter. With the release of the remake, is there any reason to go back to the original? So now that we have this you know, beautifully realized remake on Nintendo Switch, um, how do you, I mean, what would you say to, to people about the original game? Is there any value in playing the original game, especially for those who don't have any nostalgic connection to the original? I think the choice here is more a matter of what is going to be more accessible for you. Like if you have a switch, go ahead and grab the switch remake and hope that you don't see these slow down issues with stuff. If you have a copy of the original and you like, you've already got it. I would say just play that one again. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that they are obviously it's a, it's a remake. You expect a, a lot of similarity, but I think too, that, all manner of things just from the way that the games look very differently the way the music plays very different uh the 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 brevity of the original even compared to the remake because there's more stuff to do in the remake the remake is a bigger game um that could speak to any number of things you know if you've only got a certain amount of time if you prefer a shorter experience if you're looking to get through it quicker uh, I think there might be real reasons to get to the original instead of the remake. At the same time, I think you're absolutely right. If somebody doesn't have a Game Boy and they have a Switch, play the Switch remake. <laughs> yeah, I definitely and, wouldn't go out and buy a Game Boy just to get this. But if I already had the Game Boy, I would go out and buy it. Yeah. I mean, because that stuff ain't getting any cheaper. I bought a Game Boy a couple of years ago off eBay for like 40 bucks, and that was cool. But how much is Link's Awakening going for on eBay right now? Oh, you could get it sealed for $1,200. That's nice. Looks like you could get just the cart for about 30 bucks. That's not too bad. Is that the DX or the regular one? Uh, that is the regular one. Yeah, looks like three entries here, the regular one. Highest about $34, lowest about $24, a couple in-betweeners. So, um, yeah, that's not too bad at all. Uh, as far as a color goes, I could imagine that being even cheaper, perhaps. Um, plus two, I think that there's something to be said. You know, emulation might be a dirty word to some people, but I feel like there's something to be said for playing 
a handheld game on the original system uh, because that kind of just changes the, the dynamic of it. It certainly changes the way it looks. You're not looking at this, you know, in black and white on a flat screen TV blown up. You're playing this on a tiny screen, uh, which didn't even have a backlight. You got to sit in the sun. It's just a completely different kind of experience, I think. Yeah, if I was going to emulate this, really any Game Boy game, my platform of choice there is a PSP. Right. So you're still at least kind of preserving that. Uh, We were discussing recently in our Discord chat about um, Game Boy games and how, you know, you have Game Boy games aged well and that sort of thing. And that's going to mean something to different people. But uh, we were talking specifically about Super Mario Land and Super Mario Land 2. I think Super Mario Land 2 is excellent. Not so sure about Super Mario Land, although I I like it. But the point is, people got to remember, if you play Super Mario Land again on that flat screen TV now, you're probably going to be like, well, that's a commercial. That's super short. But if you play Super Mario Land on the device for which it was built, designed to run on battery life, designed to be taken anywhere, designed to be played in the sun, that's a different kind of experience again, I think. And kind of crossing the streams a little bit here, that's a lot of why my show looks at things roughly chronologically by when the game was released. Because I don't want to sit here and... Like, I don't want to look at that NES Batman game right after I'm looking at Arkham Asylum because then you inevitably Uh, get those comparisons. So I feel like you really need to understand where things have been coming from, what was possible when the games came out. That's absolutely well said. You know, uh, there was a big, well, not big kerfluffle, but a big account was making a bunch of noise about the damage that had been done to gaming because of the word objectivity. I completely disagree. I think people get butt hurt about the word objectivity all the time, but (laughs) what you said is absolutely an objective thing there. You cannot change the fact that Batman NES came out in its time on its system. And neither can you change that about Arkham Asylum. They're just two different kinds of experiences. And we may have subjective reactions to those as far as our preferences, our feelings, our emotions, and so on and so forth, and how much we may like them. But none of those things change the fact that that original Batman was on an NES and Arkham Asylum is on modern systems. And you absolutely need that context, I think, when you're discussing these games. Yeah, I can sit here all day long and talk about how Atari 2600 games were good for their time, innovative and everything. And they did some really important things. I cannot play those games for anything. That's just too early, too simple for me. I just can't wrap my head around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's something preferential going on there for sure. I know a lot of people who still love to play Atari 2600. I'm kind of more in your boat. There's a few examples that I really enjoy playing, but not a ton. Uh, But at the same time, we can admire and appreciate the real things that Atari did for sure. Uh, Going back here to the remake, this is from Ganon360 who said, from what I've seen, the original was definitely tougher. In the later dungeons, the mini-bosses would actually respawn after a while, and the worst was 
Blano. If you got hit by his huge jab, instead of being warped outside the room in the remake, you warped back to start. So perhaps another uh, facet to consider if you want to play the original or if you want to play the remake, potentially the original, it sounds like, uh, has some bits that could be harder. Uh, Here's a question for you, Professor Noctis from Prof Noctis. Such a good game, but which do you feel is better? Coming back to our are better comparisons original or remake chris which would you pick i would say the original with the caveat of i am almost always going to say the original unless a remake comes and does something really really big to improve the game and i think in this instance there's not a ton that you could do to really improve upon link's awakening it's supposed to be short it's supposed to be concise I think if it was blown out of proportion, you just kind of lose what makes it special. Yeah, like when you look at the when you look at like Final Fantasy Origins and you can say, all right, now I can have my characters automatically change their target if their original target dies. That's something where I'd say, okay, maybe Origins is a lot better. But with this, I don't feel like they added enough to this game to be able to push it up in my eyes to say that the remake is better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Designing dungeons is fun, but that's not going to push it over the top for me. Well, and that doesn't really, I want to say like designing dungeons is fun, but that doesn't really meaningfully add to what links awakening is. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Like, it almost feels, I mean, well, it is tacked on. <laughs> I was going to say it almost feels tacked on, but that's exactly what it is. So we'll we'll circle back to talking about the custom dungeons in a bit. Um, but yeah, I think that most of what's done to uh, Link's Awakening in the remake is visual and aural. And if that matters to somebody, if they look at the, the Game Boy game and think, ugh, then they're probably going to like the remake more. But I think there's a lot of people to whom just a visual update or an audio update um, doesn't automatically make something better. Joypad Lad is the good guy of retro gaming. You don't earn that moniker just for nothing. Don't believe me? I dare you to visit joypadlad.com and check it out for yourself. Form an informed opinion. The dude has got a variety of games, merch, figures, cards, stickers, paraphernalia in stock and being stocked. Don't see something for you just yet? Keep tabs on the site on the regular for new stock. Comic book fans in particular need to take a look. JPL is adding regular updates with new merch and a lot of that includes a variety of comics. Don't say I never gave you nothing. Oh, and when you check it out, be sure to use the promo code RED10, that's R-E-D-1-0, for 10% off your order. Let them know the well-read mage sent you. Another interesting fact about Link's Awakening is there are a ton of cameos, a ton of cameos in the game, including Yoshi, Kirby, Peach, number of Mario enemies, Wart, Shy Guy, Chain Chomp, Goombas, and Piranha Plant, plus Terran who really, really screams Mario, hence our title. Duct Tape Plays asked, how did you feel about all the cameos? I, for one, loved seeing Kirby show up for basically no reason. That was the coolest thing when I was 12 years old playing this game. It's still the coolest thing. All those cameos are something that I definitely did not tell my wife about before we started playing. 
So I'd kind of hoped that she had forgotten when I talked about him earlier, but I think she did for the most part. And like, especially seeing Goombas, you know, she went and sword slashed him. It's like, no, Kaylee, we need hearts. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, I definitely remember being blown away by the cameos as well. There were, you know, I wasn't like a Nintendo expert or anything. So like, I'd be like, oh, hey, that's Yoshi. Uh, or hey, that's a that's a Goomba. I don't know that I recognized like Wart or was like, oh, that's Kirby. I just might have thought it was a blob. Um, but certainly, I think the my favorite cameo in the game is that Chain Chomp, and that's one of the really early ones that you see. Uh, for me, that that just like kind of blew my mind, and it really also kind of nails like what is so endearing about Link's Awakening. So maybe you you have thoughts on this as well Um, here as we get into what makes Link's Awakening different. Link's Awakening really feels, I don't want to say lighthearted and I don't want to say toy-like, but it almost feels like fairy tale-like in a way that the the grander uh, Zelda games, the bigger Zelda games don't. Like the, the bigger Zelda games perhaps feel like sagas, of King Arthur. Whereas this game concise is a word that we've used already, but this game feels really small and compact. Like it just fits on that Island. And there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, cutesiness to it that I think defines, you know, how this unique setting works in a way that we've not seen in other Zelda games. This game to me almost feels like a fan fiction story brought to life mm-hmm. because you have all these cameos. You have your super obvious ones that we've already mentioned. You have your deep cut with Richard where you're going to find the leaves for him is another cameo from a Japan only game called the frog for whom the bell tolls, which I really need to go and check that thing out because I keep telling myself I need to, and I haven't done it yet, but just Everything about this game is so like whimsical and different from the main Zelda games, but also perfectly in line with the main Zelda games at the same time. And it just really seems like somebody who really knows what the Zelda games are all about, but had no part in making the previous ones was who came around and made the story. Yeah, I I agree. I think whimsy is a good way to nail it. There's certainly silly games in a lot of other uh, Zeldas, but there's there's a lot of menace to in a lot of other Zeldas, and uh, there's some some Zelda games that are even downright horror. I think I've always said I think that Majora's Mask is a horror game. Um, I think that Ocarina of Time has straight up horror scenes. Uh, whereas you play something like this and like earlier I mentioned fairy tale and I think more of like, like an Aesop's fable or something like that, where it's just, there's some simplicity here that's innocently childlike. Um, so that even when you speak to the owl that, you know, has this kind of air of mystery around it, it's not downright horrific. Uh, and the owl went on to, you know, play other parts in other Zelda games, but, I don't know. There's just something unique about that flavor here. Um, and Taryn, this is Mario's second family. I mean, you look at a picture of Taryn, 
This is Super Mario without his hat on, without his overalls. He's out, like, you know, holding mushrooms and things like that. Uh, I absolutely thought that this was that this was Super Mario as a kid. And don't forget, he actually gets to be the raccoon we always thought he was in Mario 3. I forgot about that, actually. Was it he? He's turned into a, a raccoon first, right? Right. He's for some reason I can't remember why right now. The one of the witches in there turns him into a raccoon, so he's just stuck in the lost woods, and you have to throw your magic powder on him, and then he gets to be Terran again. Straight up Tanuki Mario. There he is. Yeah. But I wanted to give a special shout out to a lot of people who mentioned this Zelda in the context of firsts. Uh, Savage Membrane said this was their first Game Boy game. The reason I got a Game Boy. Scurvy Bay said this was the first Zelda game I ever played. The original version in the 90s. Mistraker said my first ever Zelda game was the DX version on Game Boy. Depraved Slasher said never played the original but Link's Awakening Remake was the first Zelda game I beat since A Link to the Past. And Film Objective said, I actually just played the Game Boy original for the first time. Just beat it. So I think that's really special, too, that this was a first uh, for many people. So that's a bit on what makes Link's Awakening different. Um, and I think, yeah, looking at looking at the canon, looking at the Hyrule Historia and how this game fits in, to me it really feels like a Zelda game that doesn't fit in at all. There's no Zelda in this game. Uh, there's no Ganon in this game. Is there any mention of even the Triforce in this game? Not really. So in a, in a lot of ways, it feels aloof and detached from the main series. Um, and perhaps that's one of its, its strengths or maybe one of its most interesting traits. Uh, but how do you break down your top favorite Zelda? So this was a question that I put out to folks previously for this episode is is Link's Awakening in your top three for me like I've said it's my favorite Zelda uh, right under it a link to the past and then third for me is Zelda one I still think Zelda one is this amazing open world adventure on the NES that is just full of all these great secrets and and puzzles and dungeons and mechanics just to explore but for you what would you say are your top three Zeldas uh, my three favorites would be this one, and I'm going to clump both of the remakes in with this just as a one collective thing. Okay. Um, two would probably be... Two and three together are probably linked to the past in Ocarina of Time, and it just depends okay. on day of the week on which one is second and which one is third. So you're you're a you're a big fan of uh, of Ocarina of Time then, huh? I uh, I love that game, but I don't want, I want to say I moved from the Super Nintendo to the PS One fairly rapidly, so I don't have a ton of like childhood time spent with Ocarina. Um, but I think it's also a very special game, uh, and possibly you know easily I'll say one of the best games on the N sixty four. I think that there's great. So we've compared. Um, Link's Awakening to A Link to the Past. Um, and that's an easy comparison to do because you've got the, the 2D kind of top-down formula there. But when you start to think of comparing Link's Awakening to the 3D Zeldas, I mean, that at, its, at, its, at the root of the 3D Zeldas is Ocarina of Time. 
do you have any thoughts on on comparing those two games? Sometimes I, I talk to people and they're like, I don't do 2D Zeldas, can't stand them. Or sometimes I'll talk to people uh, and they're like, I, I, I can't do 3D Zeldas, can't stand them. And they're really, they're, there's a lot of difference there in DNA. But with a 3D Zelda on your list and Link's Awakening at the top, uh, how do you feel about comparing those two? Comparing them gets really tough. Um, it's a little bit easier with the 64 3D ones because 3D was still so new. So we it's not like you had looking at Breath of the Wild or something where you can have somebody who just thinks, oh, you know, the graphics are so much better with it. I mean, just comparing Zeldas at all anyway gets really tough because you have such different mechanics between all of them, especially when you cross into different consoles. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Comparing Zelda two to Link's Awakening, even though they're 2D, there's a there's a lot of difference going on there. Uh, I feel like Ocarina of Time and Zelda uh, Link's Awakening rather are um, are really kind of polar opposites in a lot of ways. Like Ocarina of Time feels like the biggest that Zelda had ever been uh, as far as the scope and scale of any Zelda game up to that point. And then correct me if I'm wrong, right before it was Link's Awakening, which is a very different kind of game. Yeah. It's really interesting how they went from that super compact space that the, takes up on the world to going really huge. Like they did in Ocarina. Absolutely. There, so there well, we want to move on here to a couple statements on music. Originally, I wasn't going to bring up music at all. Uh, even though I really like the music and Link's Awakening music I found on this on this show. Sometimes people want to talk music. Sometimes people don't want to talk music. Uh, and so if people, you know, listeners don't bring it up, then I typically don't address it. But that said, uh, we actually got two comments about the music. Uh, one a statement, one a question. First one from Julian Titus said, I've loved video game music since I was a kid, and I used to make my own soundtracks. I remember holding my tape recorder up to my Game Boy speaker to get Marin's song on tape. <laughs> I think that's that's really special. That's a, that's a great childhood memory. Uh, did you have any great connection to video game music as a youngster? Not really so much as a youngster. I mean... I would like the songs and I would enjoy listening to them while I was playing, but I didn't really go and find a way to do anything with it outside of that. These days I'll bug my wife and make up stupid lyrics to video game songs and she gets really annoyed <laughs> at me. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, this is, yeah, it's like I said, it's a soundtrack that I really like. Uh, I found a bootleg on vinyl for it. Uh, and so I love spinning that one, but, uh, it was not Link's awakening. It was earthworm Jim two that I actually took out a, a tape recorder and captured moonlight Sonata that plays in one of the stages on that game. I can't remember exactly what the name of the stage was, but you played as like a newt. It was like flowing through like an intestine or something like that. Um, and it was, I think the first time that I'd heard Moonlight Sonata and I was kind of just blown away at the sheer beauty of it. Um, you know, I was like Christian Bale and what was that movie? Equilibrium where he hears Mozart for the first time and just like weeps. That was the kind of effect that it had on me. And this was classical music in a video game. And I remember 
having that recording and listening to it a couple of times and then trying to transpose it into music on paper, even though I didn't know anything about sheet music at all. I was just like, yes, this notes, these, all these notes mean this. Uh, so video game music, yeah, this definitely had a big impact on my life. Uh, but kind of going back to comparing the remake and the original, this is a question here from Just Callus, who said, personally, I like what I played of the remake, but I totally disliked a lot of the choices they did with the music. Some of the tracks, mainly the boss themes, were butchered and not as impactful as the original. I also hated how they ruined the moment when you pick up the sword at the beach. Do you feel the same way? Uh, do, Chris, do you feel the same way? Yeah, the music in the remake was... It was interesting choices. I mm-hmm. I definitely preferred the Game Boy music. I feel like whoever went and did the choices for the remake, um, I don't know how much experience they've had playing original Game Boy games, honestly. Because I it there, I mean, just Callus is right here. The impact is nowhere near what it was for me listening to the Game Boy stuff. Which is is odd to say because of again those limitations. Like so, like I listened to the Game Boy soundtrack today, and this is a soundtrack that impacted me as well. But it's a very bare soundtrack, just because that's all it could be, right? It's 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 very bare chip tune. However. I don't think that it being bare or scant is is a bad thing. I think that that actually gives it some focus. Um, it's not so muddy. And then going and listening to the Link's Awakening remake soundtrack, there are absolutely some tracks that are just overdone. There's too much going on. Uh, you kind of lose the the melody with all the instrumentation that's happening. So when Just Callus dropped dropped that uh, that uh, that question earlier today, actually, I was like, "Come on!" I mean, really? And then going back and listening to it, I was like, "Oh my goodness, he's absolutely right." I went and listened to the boss themes side by side, and I don't know what they were thinking for the boss theme in the remake, but it sounds like a circus. There's all kinds of goofy like wee, 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 going on in the background, circus noises. Uh, whereas in the original, it's a very sort of NES style driving soundtrack that speaks to action rather than zaniness. And action is really what these Zelda games always come down to anyway. Like it's puzzle solving and action and how those two worlds weave their way in and out of each other is what I consider a Zelda game. So when you get this like weird sounds in the music and stuff like, yeah, maybe having that happen once is fine. But when it starts to get too weird, it's like, come on. Why are you guys trying to make Zelda be silly? Right. Especially for a boss theme, you know, because that's supposed to be the the highest moment of impact for the action. Right. Um there's one other one that we were comparing animal village. Um, and I never had any strong emotion towards animal village in the original. It's already kind of a quirky composition. Uh, but then in the remake, it's like the instrumentation is actually like animal noises, like meowing and barking. 
Uh, and that makes it just kind of over the top zany as well. So I, I, yeah, I think that the original, maybe to kind of close that off. I think that the original, uh, is more consistent with its sounds. Whereas Link's Awakening remake, um, starts to, starts to get a little hit or miss. Uh, I really like the overworld track in the remake. I thought that hearing like a cello, viola, and all those things kind of playing this quartet uh, really emphasizes how this game is about musical instruments. Um, and I wish that that consistency, that authenticity, that like tangibility of the sound of kinetic, realistic instrumentation uh, was carried out through the entire thing. And you didn't have like, again, circus noises or animal noises. Again, it's something where I'm not going to not play the game because of the music, but you know, I might have something playing on my phone while I'm playing the game. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I've, I've done that before. Yeah. Uh, on to gameplay. So, uh, gameplay items, dungeons, bosses. Uh, there were a couple notes here on items. I really wanted to give a shout out to the fishing. Any game, I'm telling you right now, any game that has a fishing mini game is a mini game that I'm going to play in that game. I freaking love fishing. I've done fishing all my life. Having grown up in Hawaii, you fish. And fishing in a game, though, it just takes out all the, the labor of fishing. Having to carry your gear around, the nasty smell of the, of your bait and the fish that you caught, having to clean the fish, having to you know drop the fish back in the ocean, finding the spot for the fishing, driving to fishing, all that, it just boils down the fishing experience to the fun of collecting and catching. Uh, and this is this is a fishing mini game that I have always adored. Uh, really loved it in the remake, loved it in the original. It's just, it's just a great time. I hated it for all the ways that you hate a game, part of a game <laughs> that like, I know I should be getting this. Why am I not getting this? So it's one of those love hate things because yeah, you know, like I should be able to find the thing that I want. Why can't I find the thing that I want? That's hilarious. You know what? I've, I've had that experience in talking with people about fishing mini games. I adore fishing mini games. And then I've, I've met so many people who are like, I hate fishing mini games. And for you, it's, it's, it sounds like you're kind of saying the the fishing game is the middleman. Whereas you want to just get to the item that you get from it. Pretty much. I mean, the reason that I don't like it is it's entirely on me. I want to be able to know, hi, this is the exact fish I need to get. And I just don't have that in this one as much as I want to. So I'll sit there and I will play it for hours until I get what I need out of it. So I don't have to go back and do it again. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's crazy uh, how different. And that, you know, earlier we were talking about objectivity. Um, it's objective to say this fishing game exists and this is how you play it. But it sounds like we're really talking about per preferential things now with the fishing mini game. Uh, fortunately, it's not the only mini game in here. Um, there's that other one with the conveyor belts. Is it right? With the, the claw grabbing, oh, thing? the exploitable claw game of doom. Yeah. The exploitable claw game of doom. What a title. <laughs> 
I love that. Um, it did not take me very long to figure out that you could, at least in the original, I don't even know about the DX version, but you could go and get the shadow to drop down right on the top left corner. And now that I'm saying this, I can't remember where the thing is, the object is that you'll pick up. But I want to say maybe the bottom right corner, you drop it to the top left when the item you want is in the bottom right, and you'll get it every time. Wow. I don't know that I ever figured that out, actually. And I might be wrong about where the item needs to be. So like, go check me on that. But it definitely you can time out exactly what you want to get. That makes total sense for, yeah, a timing-based game. Uh, and that was where Yoshi was. Do you remember what Yoshi does in the claw game? You trade Yoshi for a hair bow to some people whose kid is crying and really wants the Yoshi toy. And then you trade right. the hair bow for stuff, and you trade other stuff for stuff, and eventually you get a boomerang. Right. Everybody loves a boomerang in Zelda. But the trading minigame was a game game within itself i love that and all the interaction that you had with people in the game and there were some crazy things in there like an alligator wants dog food why would an alligator ever want dog food (laughs) no idea (laughs) but yeah that that trading quest definitely feels like you know an adventure game mechanic as well um i think i'd run into a couple people recently who don't like the the trading quest Um, for me, I feel like that's one of the things that kind of gives these NPCs life that they want things that they're just not, you know, a sign that you walk up to and read once and then you're done, but there's some interaction going on between them and yourself. Well, the thing about this one too, is once you get past the Yoshi, you don't really have to go out of your way to get anything for the trading quest so you're it's just people that you need to make sure you talk to as you're going along the story it's not like you have to go back to a village three hours after you were there for the first time yeah that's if you get it right away right if you miss it then you might have to do some backtracking but even then you can just wait until you get all the warps set up and warp around to the right places there you go there you go Fitz Retro said the item trade quest always struck me as absurd, but the final reward, the boomerang, is always worth it. Yeah, there's there's some. Well, you know, we mentioned whims whimsicalness, whimsicality, uh, whimsy. There it is in <laughs> the link in Link's Awakening. Um, there's a lot of the absurd here as well. Uh, you know, you've got talking alligators and that sort of thing. It's not like this world is just populated by, you know, what you might call Hyruleans or whatever they're called now. I don't know. I'm not on top of the Zelda canon, but, uh, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of life. There's a lot of character and personality in this game. I think my favorite absurd NPC in the entire game is the bat that lives in the caves that decides to punish you by making you able to carry more stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that's right <laughs> so this is pretty ridiculous yeah so much character uh another item that popped up is the bow of course the bow summerfelt r said did you pay for the bow or just steal it you thief 
JoyPadLadShop said, I don't know if I've fully beaten it yet, but I played it on Game Boy a lot in the 90s. Top three favorite Zelda for me. I always remember trying to steal from the shop. So, Chris, time to come clean. Did you steal the bow? Of course I stole the bow. Not every time, but I did. <laughs> so you ate the lunch from the guy in, in Chrono Trigger? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> You're that guy. Uh I don't know that I, I knew that you could steal it as a kid. And I know I've been back to play it as an adult. I'm sure I've stolen it at some point. I don't remember um, how I found out that you could steal it. But once I did, I mean, it's. No, I do remember how I found out now. I thought it was really at that point. I had figured out that Zelda games, especially this one they don't waste time telling you things that you don't need to know about for anything. So I decided as I'm playing, I'm just going to try to take an item and leave without paying. And the shopkeeper made a big deal about, no, you can't steal things. You got to pay for it. So I thought, okay, if they're going to take the time to program that into the game, they've probably made a way for me to steal it. So then I spent forever trying to figure out how I could do it. And eventually I figured it out. And when you steal the bow, you don't really need anything else from the shop anyway, so it doesn't matter. But I decided I was going to go back in the shop just to buy something instead of going out and farming it for myself. And that lightning blast I got from the shopkeeper, I was not ready for that at all. <laughs> it's a shock to the system, literally. Uh, I, I don't know that it really sounds like you played smart. When you play this game, I was eight years old and I don't know that I figured all this out as, as a kid. Um, I must've stolen it as an adult. I do remember the lightning bolt, um, but you're absolutely right. There's not a ton of dialogue in a game like this. So the, that's, that seems to be logical that if they're making a big deal about this thing, then there's probably some, some work around. There's probably some secret there. An eight-year-old me certainly didn't figure it out. This was probably like 15-year-old me. Which, yeah, I, I mean, I, that's still respectable. I was not a, I was not a smart 15-year-old. <laughs> but my, if, I, do you have a favorite item in this game? Honestly, I might have to say the ocarina just because I really like being able to go back to the beginning of the dungeon. And there are just so many cool things you can do with that. Plus, I just really like the songs. Yeah, the music is is definitely a great uh, part of the mechanics here. Uh, for me, it's the Rock's Feather. Uh, because I, this was not my first Zelda, because I played Zelda 1, didn't play Zelda 2, but played Zelda 1, Link's, uh, Link to the Past, and then Link's Awakening. The fact that you could jump like, just kind of blew my mind. Because I'd played a couple of games up to this point, even side-scrollers and, and other kinds of games, where you couldn't jump. I was like, you know, what is the jump button was the big question as a kid. You know, sometimes today people would be like, what button do I shoot with? What is the shoot button? But back then, it, for me at least, it was what is the jump button? With which button do I jump? And the fact that this game lets you jump over hazards and, and pits and things like that for me, that was a game changer, literally. I don't remember when it was or how it was that I realized you could jump on the Goombas and get them too. 
It must have just but been yeah. me falling yeah. off the ledge or something. Oh, and doing it accidentally, huh? Yeah. Because it's not something you would perhaps automatically think about. I mean, I mean you've you gone through Mario. this whole game where you have to hit things with your swords or not hit things with yeah. your swords if they're those electric land deals or something. And then all of a sudden, here's an enemy you can jump on. Yeah. It, would, it completely doesn't make any sense. I mean, even to if you, so let's say you had played Zelda 2 before Link's Awakening, you don't jump on enemies in order to kill them in that game. Uh, you've got to have that that uh, sword thrust in order to do it. So, yeah, it definitely feels like this is not something that you would normally do in a Zelda game. Uh, Wardam Alto on Twitter question is the rocks feather the best item in all of 2d zelda i don't know about the best in all of 2d zeldas but uh for me it's it's very much top tier i love that item i would say top five without question possibly top three without question Ooh, now i'm really gonna have to think of all 2d zeldas what are some interesting items that's a that's a question for twitter for sure uh on the subject of dungeons and bosses Nightfall 247 asks, do you think the dungeon maker in the remake was a dry run to see if there's a demand for a Zelda dungeon maker game? I feel it had a lot of cool potential and would love to see an expanded catalog of dungeon pieces from multiple Zeldas. Okay, first off, I feel like if they think that they need to make a dry run to see if the fans would want it. That's just really dumb because, of course, the fans want it. That seems more like a Square Enix thing at this point square enix will be like you know we might release these pixel remasters on console but we really got to see demand it's like demand that that carried the sales of final fantasy for decades you need to see that kind of demand uh whereas nintendo it seems to understand that people love zelda i mean they do a lot of zelda stuff they put out a lot of zelda things there's a ton of zeldas on the nintendo switch that you can play um but that's something i would absolutely love to see and i could totally see nintendo doing it obviously they have super mario maker um and there's a bit of zelda in there with link but i think a zelda dungeon maker as a standalone game would do real well we would see some insane dungeons in all the best ways. I would, that would probably be the first Nintendo game I bought within weeks of release in a very long time. <laughs> that might be, uh, that would be a day one for me. I think uh, you could definitely see some interesting things happening there. So as far as bosses, did you have any particular thoughts on the bosses in this game? I think it's got some quirky entries. I love seven of the eight bosses here. Just <laughs> the way that you go through and get whatever item it is in the dungeon and then have to use it to fight that boss, I think has worked in really well. I hate the eagle because I kept getting knocked off and would have to get my way to the top of the tower again. But everything else I loved. Yeah, falling off is never cool. That's why I didn't like the worm either in, in Link's Awakening. I keep falling off. Uh, I think I was thrilled to do the 2D uh, kind of side-scrolling battle with the eagle. But falling off sucks. It really does. Yeah, If you want 2D, that's what the anglerfish is for, I think. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, yeah. So some quirky bosses. There's definitely a lot of fun there. Um, they've expanded it apparently in the DX version. Never played that, but uh, I think that the bosses were really brought to life uh, in a fun way in the remake. But as we move on here to the story, a bit on Kohalin Island, talk about characters, and of course the big kind of reveal there as you get through the game. Uh, It's interesting that it's not thrown at you right at the end, but it is something that's revealed over the course of the game. Uh, But I feel like this all hinges on what we have been discussing, which is that Kohalint and the the setting, the way the game plays, the way that the, the game kind of presents itself to the player is very different from a lot of uh, from a lot of other um, a lot of other Zelda games. And I feel too that there's a special bit here, you know, representation is a big subject that'll be brought up. And for me, growing up on an island and then having a Zelda game that takes place on an island. I think for me just felt a little extra special. Like that was, that was something that I understood. Um, and I think it gave this area, uh, this world definable boundaries, you know, that you, you would always run into a shore at some point or the ocean at some point. I didn't have the Island connection with this one, but I did have the link as an outsider connection. My dad was Air Force, so growing up for us, I would constantly find myself in this situation where I would be like Link, going into an already established world and having to figure out what's going on in that world, what's going on with the people there. A lot of those people in there wouldn't have ever been anywhere else, and as far as their lives were concerned, they basically were on an island that they would never leave. And Mm. also like Link, I would know that there would be something that would happen that would make me have to leave. And essentially that world wouldn't exist anymore because I'm an old man and instant messaging wasn't invented for a while. Mm. Like until I was in high school, really. Yeah. We had pen pals (laughs) and that's about it. And we all know how long those last when you're 10 years old. Yeah. Writing letters is is not exactly something that I wanted to do all the time to keep in touch with people. Uh, that's that's very poignant, um, and I think it speaks to a lot of the uh, the the kind of sadness, like a very elegant sadness, I think, in Lake's Awakening, uh, and how it handles its its core themes, which is something I really appreciate about this game because I think there's a lot of ham handedness in the way that video games handle emotion. Um, Something I was talking about with a friend recently is, you know, how video games handle the subject of human sexuality uh, is, is one thing that I think video games need to continue to develop and mature as an art form. Uh, And beyond that though, how video games handle emotion just just basic human emotions, not even like really the complex emotions that are kind of mishmashes of all these different feelings, but just the, the basic emotions. Um, there's a lot of melodrama. There's a lot of screaming going on in video games, but I think there's room to explore still and kind of develop how video games approach emotion. And so when I finished uh, 
Link's Awakening. Yeah, I felt like you. I I didn't I didn't hop around to so many different communities. Uh, we did move a lot, but it was still within kind of the same uh, island area and region and town. Um, you know, you move from schools and every once in a while and you, you say goodbye to friends and you, maybe you say, oh, we'll keep in touch. But, um, again, 10 years old, you're not, I'm <laughs> not that great at keeping in touch. And so when you finish, uh, Link's Awakening and you say goodbye to these characters in a way that is real for Link in a way that's beyond just saying goodbye to these characters because you finished the story, but saying goodbye to these characters because they don't exist anymore. Uh, I think that there's a lot of potency there for sadness. And especially when you consider the fact that on the remake, if you go through the game without dying at all, you then see an image of Marin in the sky and as that image fades away, you have a seagull fly through. So then there's the thought of, oh, no, were these people real the whole time? And now they're all gone except for Seagull Marin. Right, because she says earlier in the game, I'd love to grow wings and fly away like seagulls, right? That was sort of her her wish and longing and having that dream within a dream, right? That longing, that yearning within uh, this dream world. I'm going to get all that out in the open. This is evidently uh, the dream of some cosmic deity, the, the wind fish in that egg, right? Uh, there's a question here from Syrian song. Was it all just a dream? How do you typically feel about stories that pull the just a dream twist? Does being a dream explain why certain parts of the story are what they are? And why isn't Marin Zelda when we usually dream of people we know as themselves, not lookalikes. Now we're not, what is that? Onirologists uh, here. So uh, we, unless Chris is, I don't know, Chris, are you, you know, an expert on dreams or anything? I am definitely not an expert on dreams. Okay. <laughs> to get, to get that out in the open as well. Uh, so we're not, um, I don't think, I think that there's a lot to consider there. Um, you know, I've heard people say, well, perhaps, you know, Link was the one dreaming all of this. Uh, it seems to be that, you know, from the game's perspective that the windfish was dreaming all of this, but as Chris pointed out, there's the seagull at the end. So does Marin become more than a dream? Does she get her dream come true? Um, don't know, but I feel like the lack of over explanation is part of what lends to that, that thoughtfulness, to that wistfulness. I think of all the games that have gone and said, oh, this is just a dream. This is definitely one of the better ones because it's kind of hinted at throughout the game. And yeah, that does let you bring in a bunch of random stuff. I think that is your excuse for having all the random Mario cameos and other cameos from stuff. And that's your excuse for having bosses from a link to the past come back and be their shadow selves in the game because you don't outside of link dreaming of them. You don't really have a good reason for them to suddenly show up. 
Bifrost Bridge Studios is the creative architect behind the Gaia's Seed graphic novel universe, blending artificial intelligence, neurodiversity, and science fiction. Bifrost, a transmedia company, has now turned its focus towards Patreon, looking to beef up its crowdfunding campaign through digital and physical rewards, up to and including original custom retro gaming hardware. Bifrost has been a real boss supporting and sponsoring the Wednesday giveaways that I do weekly on stream at twitch.tv forward slash the mage. If you're looking for more of that sweet, sweet gold, check out patreon.com forward slash Bifrost Bridge Studios. Link in the description. So now are we are we saying that Link, I mean, what is your view on that? Is Link dreaming this? Is the Windfish dreaming this or both? I think it's kind of a shared dream experience here. Um, I can't think of any real good examples right now, but Link obviously has something going on because he's tied to the mast on his ship. Big ship gets wrecked. Whether it's his own dream or he sucked into the dream of the windfish. I don't think is really important here. I feel mm. like if you go through this whole thing thinking it's just Link's dream, okay, that's perfectly fine. If you think that it's the Windfish, which is personally where I am, because that would just be mm. way too coincidental for a Sky Whale to be flying above Link right after he wakes up, mm-hmm. then that's also cool. Whether it was some real thing that the windfish was dealing with or just a dream of the windfish that the windfish sucked and link into, I don't think is really important either. But I can say that I definitely have had dreams where my wife was some other random person Mm -hmm. in just how they looked and some other random person was my wife in every way except how she looked. It's almost like, uh, and I've actually had to explain this to my kids. My six-year-old will have these very strong dreams every once in a while. Uh, and every once in a while, he'll he'll dream me like, oh, I wasn't myself. Um, and I'm sure you've had dreams like that as well, where you know it's you, but you're somebody completely different. It's almost like you know like the presence of, of your soul, like who you are, whatever that is, your personification. Uh, in your dream, you're like, oh, that's me, or oh, that's my wife. Oh, this is a family member. Like I've had dreams about friends that I haven't thought of for years, and I know it's them, but it doesn't look anything like them. Uh, and so maybe, they, yeah, there's some of that going on here. Link certainly seems to have agency uh, here. Um, and so it not being a completely private dream definitely seems to read from this as well. Uh, but thinking about what you said, Chris, with uh, this seems to be one of the better examples of stories where they pull that just a dream twist. I was really trying to think of what are other like stories that really kind of match this context. Um, and I thought of Super Mario Brothers 2. It's a Zelda game. It's, it wasn't released too far away from Link's Awakening. Uh, it's also by Nintendo. But... I feel like there's two different approaches there to, oh, it's just a dream. When you finish Super Mario Brothers 2, they throw that on you and be like, ah, it was just a dream. Gotcha. 
and they show you Mario waking up. There's no ambiguity to who is dreaming. Um, and that one revelation of it just being a dream explains everything. Whereas in Link's Awakening, like you said, they tell you early. And it's something that's built upon early. And the game doesn't entirely hinge or rely upon, oh, it's just a dream as a kind of plot twist, but rather asking questions beyond that. So if it is a dream, what is real? Who is real in this story? And I think that's much more uh, complex than just throwing a plot twist down. Yeah, with Mario 2, it just feels like somebody had a TV show going and all of a sudden they knew they were getting canceled, so they were trying to tack an ending onto it real quick. And I'm <laughs> sure everybody here listening knows about Doki Doki Panic and how that became Mario. So right. them doing the dream makes sense to me on how they could have all these things that are not Mario at the time suddenly be in a Mario game. But I wish they had had some better way of implementing it. And I think Zelda here just pulled it off beautifully. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, if you're looking at how video games use dreams as a narrative gimmick, as a mechanic, whatever you want to call it as a trope, this is absolutely one to look at. And I think that's really part of you know, what makes the game so elegant and so sad. Uh, a gamer looks at 40 asks, does Link die in the end? He's floating on a barrel in the middle of the ocean. Unless the entire game is a hallucination, it doesn't look good. And if he's doomed to perish, the big question, does he deserve it? You can argue he's the main antagonist. Maybe it's a comeuppance. Uh, this this is the kind of, uh, of theorizing that I think you typically see from modern audiences. Uh like, I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of thing, Chris, I don't mean to belabor any sort of point, but one of my, uh, one of the things that I've encountered with various films that I like is like my neighbor Totoro and people are like, Oh, did you know, or what if, uh, Totoro, you know, is the God of death and these kids were dead the whole time and you're just seeing their ghosts and you know, the father's remembering them. And I feel like that doesn't really say anything about the game. It says a lot about the person asking the question. Uh, whereas I tend to rely more on how does the game interpret itself for you? And, you know, are you reading that accurately? So I actually asked a gamer looks at 48 bill. Good friend. I actually asked him for more details. Like, what do you mean by antagonist? And I think this is interesting though. This not to undersell bills thought here, but Link is essentially working towards the eradication of this society. Now, whether they're real or not, and one of them at least seems to be real, working towards the eradication of a society and the ending of a dream that is this strong uh, seems to be not a great thing. And yet you can't stop playing the game just because of that. Jumping back on Totoro for a second, that is such a beautiful movie anyway and i don't think that really changes much if it ends up the kids are dead the whole time yeah but i think that's also definitely a situation where once the piece is released out into the world like i make of it what i need to make of it for me 
and almost it almost doesn't matter what uh, Miyazaki intended it to be. It matters how it hits me. Uh, I mean, like, what do you mean? I, I guess I'm having a hard time kind of grasping that that thought there. Like to me, if it reads like the kids are dead the whole time and that's their ghost and that's the story I get out of it, then it doesn't really matter if that's what he intended, because that's the way I'm going to understand it anyway. I see what you mean. Is there, I mean, is there room in that to say that, you know, there's certain interpretations of media are authentic or inauthentic or accurate or inaccurate in your, in your opinion? There's definitely some things I think that can be wrong, but that really comes down to like, did you miss a fact that was laid out in the story kind of thing? The one that jumps to my mind most is in high school, we had to read, I think it was Ethan Frome, one of the, something that came out around that time anyway. And my teacher made a big deal about, oh, the, the pickle dish broke and represented the falling apart of their relationship and everything and just would not accept from us that sometimes dishes just break. <laughs> <laughs> but then when tying this back into Zelda here too, like Link, first off, I think that Link is just in the ocean and we're zoomed in too close to see land that's close enough for him to be fine because you have seagulls flying around and they don't go so far out that they won't be able to get back to land. Mm -hmm. But I never even thought about him possibly being the antagonist here until I saw these questions cheating and looking at the show notes early. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I think that I probably skew a little more towards, uh, authorial intent. And there are, there's a lot of literature that's been written on how, you know, that's a fallacy to overemphasize authorial intent. But I mean, speaking as an author, of somebody who's like written a book that's been published and you can go out and read it right now and please do it. It's called last dish goes to their nose. Thank you for your service. When I think about that story to me, the most important part is the, the interpretation that I put into it. So I joke about it. Sometimes I'll be like, if you read, if you read my book and think it's an analogy for star Wars, you're wrong. I, I, I don't care if that interpretation means more to you subjectively that's fine, but you cannot say anything more than to me, this is an analogy to Star Wars. You cannot say this is an analogy to for Star Wars. Um, when it comes to Link's Awakening, I think there's a lot that's told to you in Link's Awakening, but at the same time, the authorial intent here is a lot of ambiguity as well. So I think that absolutely leaves room for questions such as these um, to think about the game in unique ways in different ways um, to think about the game's interpretation in different ways. I was thinking about this this morning, actually <laughs> you ever wake up and like your first thought is just that really random thought. I woke up this morning thinking about links awakening and thinking about how it's about loneliness. And I don't know how accurate that is. Cause I, I hadn't replayed it, you know, since just this morning. Um, but Link is alone at the start of the game, and he winds up alone at the end of the game. Uh, Marin, 
is alone yearning through the game and she winds up alone at the end of the game. Uh, I think I would have loved to have seen Marin and Link, you know, join together and travel together after this game. But it's clear that once this game is over, everybody goes their separate way, separate ways. But that's the good thing about Zelda games, too, is we can always jump around in the timeline and get something where Marin and Link still get to have their adventures together. That's true. I mean, if they have they done that and I don't know about it. Well, if you if they have, I don't know about it either. Okay, <laughs> but the possibility is there is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. I mean, I don't know if she's in like Hyrule Warriors or anything like that. I haven't played that, but um, no, that's a good point that you can kind of revisit this if that's what they decide to. I'm at a point now where I think like it's best that they just leave this sad and leave it alone and leave it lonely um, because it it has more power that way, perhaps. I agree. I think this is kind of a really well-contained little microcosm of the entire Zelda universe and trying to add too much onto it now, especially with the time spent since the game came out originally would just be, it wouldn't be anything that they couldn't do with just a completely unrelated title. Yeah. And I I don't think that, explaining a mystery from 1993 is anything that really needs to happen outside of like history and archaeology. <laughs> it's, it's a story that's done. Uh, and, and letting it rest is a good thing. Creators knowing when to let things rest is a good thing. And I think, yeah, like to tie back to what we were saying earlier, that distinction of there's no Zelda, there's no Triforce, there's no Ganon. This is not, you know, you trying to save the the universe. Um, there's no deeper lore of, of gods and goddesses and a profound history going on here. No kings, no castles. Uh, it's just a compact story. Uh, and I think that's that's one of its strengths. So folks, uh, we, you know, we heard quite a bit from audiences here. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment to get a mention on this show, you can just keep an eye out on my Twitter at the well-read mage, where I announce the topics for each mage cast episode in advance. And I put out those announcements, you know, polling for questions and comments. Um, I love that because for me, it it really helps kind of shape. Okay. What is this discussion going to be about? Because I know there's some podcasts where they'll spend an entire season talking about just one game because you can, because there's so much that can be said. Uh, I, I remember somebody told me, uh, you know, ta- speaking about reviewing retro games, they're like, is there anything else to be said on Super Mario World? And that's a cute statement, but the answer is yes. Yeah, there is. There's a lot more to be said because people are still talking about art from like 3000 years ago. There's a lot that you can say about these things that is beyond just, you know, what they're regurgitating over on YouTube. So uh, I <laughs> hope you enjoyed this conversation on that. We do have a couple other questions here to tie us off here at the end. But next episode, we're going to be talking about Elden Ring. I'm very excited to sit down with the folks at Bonfire Side Chat uh, to talk about Elden Ring. They are doing an Elden Ring uh, season, I believe, for their podcast. So come back, check that out. I just finished the game. Really love it. I have a ton of questions for them. So that should be great. But here are our final questions. 
Uh, this is from Kerry 86. If we talk about the game, we have to talk about censoring. Here in Germany, the original Game Boy version had some really naughty jokes in it about uh, things like prophylactics. This was censored in the DX version, and we got other text and a new dungeon. So what is your opinion about censoring? So did you see this comment, Chris? Just here in the show notes. So I didn't really have a chance to dig into anything, but this is definitely something I was not aware of at all. Me neither. And I think that like the regional localizations uh, can be really fascinating. Uh, We were just talking about that with Chrono Cross on the previous episode about how characters speak differently, how they have different accents and different mannerisms to their voice. But uh, the image that Carrie included with this question is one of those like little cactus guys walking around. I don't know if you remember the names of those. I can see them, but I can't remember the name. Okay, me neither. But (laughs) apparently there's, uh, yeah, there's like somewhat vulgar references when you interact with those uh, in in the German original version that were later then censored in the DX version. Um, beyond that specific, that very interesting regional specific censorship in video games is actually a a huge topic and remains a a relevant subject. Now we're here at the pretty much the end of this podcast, so we're not going to talk about censorship too much in depth, but do you have, I mean, his basic question is, do you have an opinion on censorship in video games? I think it's such a case by case basis. Like that's a good answer. If you're making the game for little kids, then obviously you want to make it safe for little kids. Mm -hmm. Even if the original wasn't for little kids, I mean, there's questions of why you would do that there that come up. I mean, there's the silly Nintendo censorship of anything slightly religious is gone. There's examples on the NES where you could do whatever you wanted to robots, but you couldn't kill humans so you have games that are about killing robots instead of killing humans but they're otherwise the exact same and with no visual changes made at all to the game a lot of cases i think the censorship what happens is silly but the fact that it exists sometimes it needs to happen i think that's a good answer um i think that people will try and force you into a pro or anti camp too frequently and not just with censorship, but with any number of controversial issues, you know, are you pro this or are you anti this? And life isn't really that simple. Um, I think that politically, culturally, sociologically, people would have you fit neatly into either tribal sectarianism system. Um, but it really, it really, doesn't work that way, which is why I really appreciate your answer there, Chris. I think that a case by case basis is a good approach to the subject. Well, there's very few situations where it's distinctly pro or con. And I feel Mm -hmm. like this is not the show to bring up what those cases are. No. (laughs) Yeah, not exactly. Um, I know. I think another thing to consider with, um, with censorship is, I think that it's less alarming for me, at least, um, when a platform or a publisher says, nah, we're not going to publish this game or we're going to publish it, but we're going to censor it. 
because that game could also exist on other platforms uncensored um, if they're porting it, especially. So like in this instance that Carrie brings up, that original Game Boy version always exists in German. The DX version censors it. I don't think that the DX version eradicates the original. Um, and therefore that's less of an issue to me. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Like pretty soon we're going to get to a situation where like in Hulk comics, there was an issue where there was some writing on the window that got really, really problematic. And we're pretty soon going to get to a situation where everything that Marvel has released is going to be their fixed version. And I mean, I say that, no, I'm, I'm not saying that you should let racist and things into your media, mm-hmm. but it is a thing that still exists. And unfortunately my shop did not get any new copies of the reprinted stuff sent in. So I have that original racist version because that's all I can get. That's interesting. Uh, and that absolutely seems like another case by case basis as well. Yeah. I think that an annihilation kind of perspective on what is censorship doing and the reach of censorship is absolutely something to consider. Uh, I think another thing to consider with censorship um, is, you know, what it, where is the censorship coming from? I mentioned publishers just now. Um, but in some ways I'm actually more concerned about censorship from fandoms and from fans than I am from publishers because a publisher is just going to be like, all right, no boobs for you. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like, (laughs) or a publisher is going to be like, oh, we're going to take some naughty words out of this or, you know, we'll, you know, fix the way a character looks or something like that. Or we'll take out some violence, uh, you know, a troublesome scene, whatever, a problematic um, issue, or, you know, like you just mentioned racism. Whereas what I've encountered from fandoms is also censorship. Um, what you can say about a game, especially in terms of criticism. So this actually happened to me recently. Uh, and this is the first time I'm sharing this story on here. Uh, the names are changed to protect the innocent. I, I'm not going to like spiel any like, you know, gossip here or anything. But what happened to me recently is somebody accused me of being pro censorship. Uh, they accused me of of using criticism of video games to call for the censorship of things which I was criticizing. Um, I pointed out that I was making jokes about hypersexualized characters in video games. Jokes. I am a video game critic and, and have said that I am uh, separately. But this person insisted that what I was doing was call, essentially a witch hunt, calling for uh, change to be made in this game, boycotts, whatever. And I told him, look, I don't even believe in boycotts. I don't call for boycotts. And he was like, you don't understand the power you have. Um, I've had more pushback against a joke about a video game than I have for almost every other thing that I've written about. Um, whether that's even putting a number on a video game as far as like, oh, this is not an eight out of 10 is more like a four out of 10. Um, the thing that gets most a lot of people riled up actually is something that they don't think is funny 
And I think a pushback against that is saying things like, oh, it's not cool to make fun of this game or this means a lot to people. So, you know, watch what you say. I feel like there's definitely censorship from the publishers, but then at the same time, there's definitely censorship from fandoms as well. I don't know. Have you ever encountered that or is that like super far off base for your experience? I haven't encountered it myself, but I've had friends who have mostly from the aspect of like, this is everybody's favorite comic character. You can't say anything bad about them or this character just had this real big, important social issue reveal. So it doesn't matter. I think one of the biggest ones I heard lately was somebody said that they really liked the character of, um, wow, why are names escaping me right now? Mr. Sinister. And they got a bunch of crap for it because at one point, Mr. Sinister was working with Nazis and, Uh, you know, Nazis are bad. I'm sure. I hope that's not a hot take. No, but you also, the guy's name is Mr. Sinister. So yeah, right. (laughs) So like liking a character does not mean that you agree with everything that they have ever done in the 60 years of comics and who knows how many different writers and editors and artists and everything all having their hands in that pot. It just means that right now you like what's happening with that character. Yeah. I think that's, that's an, a very astute way to phrase it. Um, you'll run into that. Sure. With film, with, with books. Um, I've encountered it somewhat recently with Lovecraft, Lovecraft, for instance, having some very, you know, wrong views about race. Um, does that mean you can never read Lovecraft again? I think that's up to an individual and the individual can certainly express their, their perspectives on that because I think our society requires us to do that We're we're better for being social creatures that can express our views, but you can't exactly censor somebody else, you know, whether they're making jokes or whether they're criticizing character that you like. So all that to say, I mean, that's fairly heavy subject matter. And here, as we move on to the, the next questions about seashells. So <laughs> the, the, these aren't all the heavy questions here at the end, but all that to say, just, you know, if you're complaining about censorship, um, then think about whether you're trying to censor others as well. You can be anti-censorship and pro-criticism. You can't be anti-censorship and then censor criticism. All right, next question. Terrence Harkin said, did you find all the secret seashells in the original? What about the remake? I am pretty sure I found them all in the original. Um, I know I at least found enough to get my highest sword level. So I might have stopped caring after then. But in the remake, I know for 100% sure that we found all of them because my wife likes to get everything. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, this was one uh, that sticks with me uh, for a long time. You get a sword, right? Is that all that you get from doing all the seashells? Well, all of a sudden your sword can shoot beams and everything, so it's not just any sword. That's true. This is this game's version of the Master Sword. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Like Along the way, you get a heart piece, and there's some other things in there as you get up to different levels of filling up that meter. And it's something to do. 
again, it makes the makes the world feel a little more complex, a little more real, rather than just moving from screen to screen. Um, final question here from Duo Beard: Could you potentially see any further console release of this Zelda formula used in any future Zelda titles? Because we know this was certainly best suited for a majority of the handheld games. Interesting statement here. So again, coming from somebody who thinks that A Link to the Past is the best Zelda, I think that there's a lot of people who still think the 2D Zelda formula is very viable. Um, there are certainly, perhaps it's been demonstrated that there are many indie games that prove that the 2D Zelda formula is viable because they're the ones riffing off of it. They're the ones using that formula for console games. So do you, Chris, think in the future we might see a console release of a 2D Zelda game again, or is it 3D from here on in? I sure hope we get another 2D one. Um, the Switch is the perfect platform for that. And if Nintendo ever makes a just dedicated handheld only system ever again, then I think it would be a no brainer to do a Zelda game like this. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I really would have loved to see that uh, 2D D-Make, the prototype of Breath of the Wild. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. I didn't, but I know what I'm going to go watch videos about now when we're done recording. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like NES Zelda 1, um, but it's it's Breath of the Wild. Um, not Never released, and that is a shame because that would be really fun to check out. Well, that is the end of this song here. The windfish is about to wake up, so we got to go. Uh, Chris Osborne from Play Comics, thanks for being on the show. Where can our listeners find you? The best place to find me is over at playcomics.com. That has links to all the social media stuff. I'm mostly active on Twitter. I recently joined your Discord server, but I'm also fairly active on the gunnageek.com network Discord server uh, of which play comics is a member of that and you know find links to all the episodes that i've done go check out play comics on basically any podcatcher that you want except spotify because they're butt faces right now that is a <laughs> conscious choice on my part and when they can get on the better side of history i will put it back there you go i feel like that fits into what we were discussing earlier with uh with being on different sides of an issue for sure and making that choice for yourself. But Chris, thanks for being on this show to talk about dreams and Zelda. Uh, it was a lot of fun and we'll be talking about uh, the comic book video game that we're going to talk about pretty soon. Yep. That is definitely a thing that is going to happen and I'm not going to tell people what it is here because they're just going to have to dream about what they think it might be. Yes. Exactly. And those that know me uh, might be thinking it's a DC game. And maybe it is. That's all the clues you're going to get. Good night. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, here's what you can do next. Try browsing our library and check out another episode. You could leave a review or rating on your app of choice. That would really help the show out. You could visit Patreon if you really want to help support the show. Finally, how about joining our Discord community? There's links for you in the description. Be sure to check it out. The dream may be over, but the legend will live on. Passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons. <laughs> <laughs>